Hello, this is the Shout for Libraries podcast hosted by CGSR 88.5 FM, coming to you upon Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. On the program today, fellow co-hosts Christina Harbach, Paula Kerman, and Dan Hackborn bring to you their personal recommendations on the latest discussion on the carceral state. But first, Alessia Kamanitska interviews researcher Kenzie Gordon, the project lead for the Edmonton Police Violence Archive, which, full disclosure, a number of us here are volunteers for. Despite increased attention on the subject in recent years, police violence remains an underdocumented topic in Canada, which makes its sheer scale impossible to quantify. Through archival work, Gordon and the volunteers there wish to document all past and present cases of police violence to provide activists and the public with a knowledge of what police all too regularly do. So without further ado, take it away, Alessia. All right, so to start us off here, could you please introduce yourself and the professional role that you have with the Edmonton Police Violence Archive, which we will be discussing today. For sure. So my name is Kenzie Gordon. I use she, her pronouns. Um, and I am the project lead on the Edmonton Police Violence Archive, um, which is kind of a sub-project of an Edmonton nonprofit organization called Sexual Assault Voices of Edmonton. Great. Thank you. And uh, how did you come to be involved with the archive? So I've been on the board of SAVE for maybe about six years now. Um, and SAVE is an organization that does um, like public campaigns about issues related to sexual violence and in particular um, holding accountable perpetrators of sexual violence. Um, so SAVE was somewhat ironically actually founded by Edmonton Police Service and a number of other organizations in the community, um, obviously since parted ways. Um, but uh, so I was on the board of SAVE in, in 2020 when, um, you know, the George Floyd murder took place and kind of the Black Lives Matter movement was um, kind of coming to prominence again. And something that we noticed on SAVE is that sexual violence was kind of getting used as like a straw man for reasons why policing still needed to exist. So there was kind of this argument that like, who will catch the rapist? basically, um, if we don't have police, um, which, you know, everyone who is involved with SAVE is a professional in sexual violence, a survivor, an advocate. Um, and we know that that's really problematic. We know that police are really bad at responding to sexual violence and actually traumatize survivors more often than they help them, that they very rarely get, um, quote unquote, justice outcomes, as we might understand them in the criminal justice system in terms of convictions. Um, and that it was really kind of like a false equivalency to suggest that like policing was the solution to sexual violence. Um, and so we decided to start a defund the police campaign kind of in solidarity with groups like Black Lives Matter um, with kind of a specific focus on that policing is not the solution for sexual violence either and that it's not preventing it. It is, in fact, probably making the experience worse for many survivors. Um, and in the process of our community consultations with folks in the city about, you know, what should this look like for SAVE, what, what components are important to us, um, something that was brought up was the idea that we have no records, really, of what police violence looks like in our community. And that includes police violence um, when they're perpetrating sexual violence, when they are mishandling reports of sexual violence um, in ways that are harmful sur for survivors, but also more broadly. We have very little information on the kinds of harms that policing does to our community. Um, and we kind of identified that as, as something that maybe we could do 
um, to provide kind of not ammunition, but to, but to provide information to put something in the hands of people who've already been doing the abolition work in terms of just identifying kind of what are these harms? Because if we think about community safety and like a world free of policing, um, you know, these things are all integrated and, and things like white supremacy and racialized violence are very tightly interwoven with how sexual violence happens in our community. Um, so that kind of led to the idea of the archive. Um, and we have kind of been plugging away ever since to try and make it a uh, reality. Mm-hmm. Thank you for those details. It's, uh, it's really helpful to know the background of this project. And um, was there a lot of support for something like this to be created in the community? It was certainly something that a few people had kind of mentioned. Um, and whenever you talk to people about it, they think it's a great idea. Um, I don't think that there was a lot of demand, mostly because there's not like a lot of precedent for it, especially in Canada. Um, so I don't think it's a thing people really expect to be able to have. Um, and especially because police tend to keep information pretty close to the vest in terms of what their response to mm-hmm. things look like and what the complaints um, that are made against them look like. Um, this kind of information is not really out there and activists don't really expect to have it. Um, but anytime you tell an abolitionist, like, you know, we could try and gather that information. Um, it is like a really exciting prospect to be able to kind of get a handle on what a, what does police violence look like in our community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, when I was doing some research for this interview, I looked into some similar efforts that were happening across Canada and uh, the CBC Deadly Force database was the one that I came across, which I think was started in 2018, mm-hmm. um, primarily because there was no publicly accessible government database in Canada that tracked fatalities at the hands of the police. Um, so it's it's good that now Edmonton has something that's specific to to this area. Yeah. And I think it's important to to track things beyond fatalities too. Like deadly force is obviously important and it kind of draws attention to a national trend. Um, but, you know, a conversation that we've had at the archive is it's almost beneficial for police if you only think about fatalities as what police violence looks like, um, because that's a fairly easy statistic for them to change. And it doesn't really um highlight like the systemic problems with policing so much because it kind of can be pointed to as like one-off incidents or a bad apple cop or whatever Mm -hmm. um so yeah i think to us it's really important to kind of be able to understand the spectrum of how violence against racialized people about against vulnerable people kind of occurs um more broadly than the things that kind of make the big headlines because those are you know, easier to pass off as as one-offs than kind of the everyday realities of policing. And certainly there's very little in Canada kind of systematically documenting anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important what you say about it being a spectrum. And so what sorts of incidents are being logged in the archive and what criteria might you have for these incidents? Um, so our definition of violence is kind of something that is up for debate because, you know, depending on how broadly you understand what violence is, um, you know, some people would argue that borders are violence. And so like enforcing immigration is violence. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but kind of the parameters that we put around it is police violence is anything that police do 
that causes physical or psychological harm to a member of our communities. Um, and so that, of course, includes things like physical violence and fatalities and sexual violence. Um, but it also includes things that kind of create an atmosphere of fear for community members. So, um, you know, there's uh, a practice that's quite common. It kind of came to light in Saskatoon a few years ago. Um, but it happens here too, where police will pick up like an unhoused person in the middle of the city and drop them on the edge of the city in the middle of the winter. Um, and this is like kind of, you know, just a, an act of control to kind of show that like, hey, we can put you wherever we want. Um, this puts an unhoused person at risk of harm. They're far from all of the resources that they're familiar with. They might be far from their friends or their possessions. Um, and it kind of creates an atmosphere of intimidation that, you know, we can pick you up and, and drop you anywhere we want, anytime we want. Um, so, so things like that count for us too. So things like profiling, um, police have a bit of a tendency in Edmonton to um, unequally enforce bylaws on businesses owned by racialized people. Um, you know, anything kind of along those spectrum of, of behavior kind of falls into our definition of violence. And that includes um, kind of more conceptual things too, like um, there was kind of a, an incident recently in the news where the police announced they were going to use this like phenotyping um system to like id the assailant in this sexual assault case um and they like put up this close poster of this black man that's like a, a reconstruction of a face based on phenotyping which is like dicey science to begin with but like that guy isn't actually anybody right it's just their imagination of what the mm -hmm. assailant in this particular sexual assault might look like um and there was obviously a lot of pushback that you know you're putting out the face that could look like somebody right who has nothing to do with this um and so, yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a situation that happens with an individual, but kind of these practices that are harmful to like a whole cultural community. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. What's what's the point of something like that? That's not really achieving anything. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So for our listeners, um, I was hoping you could maybe talk about how the how does the archive work? You know, who finds out about these incidents? and um, what kind of a team structure you're working in and how does it all come together? Yeah, so in our vision for the archive, there's two kind of pathways that information can come in. Um, right now, one of them is functioning and one of them is in process. Um, so the one that is in process is that we hope to accept submissions from the community about their experiences. And I think that's really like the core of what we want is to give people a space to kind of um, have their experience acknowledged and validated as something that happened. Um, so that will be a process of kind of building partnerships with community agencies, with street teams like Bear Clan Patrol, for example, um, and kind of getting out there and talking to people. That is the part that's on hold right now because we're trying to figure out the legalities. You know, we would never want to expose a member of our community to legal risk because they shared their story on the archive, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the part that's kind of like on hold while we figure it out. Um, what the archives practice looks like right now is that we have a team of research volunteers. Um, they're primarily graduate students in library studies um, and some in the digital humanities as well. Um, and this team kind of looks through a variety of publicly reported sources to pull together information about what incidents of violence look like. Um, so that could be looking at news reporting on like a, a public media outlet. 
Um, it could also be looking at things like the ACERT reports. So the Alberta Serious Incident Response Team is tasked with um, conducting an investigation anytime um, there's like an allegation of misuse of force or some kind of problematic behavior for the police. And they typically publish a report based on those findings. Um, so kind of looking through those and incorporating anything that's, that's an incident of police violence. Um, so it's a lot of kind of combing through a combination of government and legal documents um, and news reporting to kind of put together um, a, a picture of what's happening in our city. Okay, thank you. So there's potentially the two phases or is, is there something else you kind of envision for the future of the archive? Apparently the two phases. I mean, the, the community submission process is kind of a, a wide open unknown at this point, because I think there will be lots of individuals who just want to share their story either in person um, or online. But I think that in the long run, um, there's probably a lot of opportunity for like larger community conversations as well. Um, and something that's really important to us in the archive is not making data fit the archive, but making the archive fit the data. Um, so if you know, we go to a group setting where there's, you know, four or five people that want to share a story of something that happened to them collectively or kind of their own individual experiences that don't necessarily fit the nice box of like, this is a single incident, but rather, you know, over the course of my lifetime as, let's say, a racialized person in the city, like this kind of experience has repeated, we would try and incorporate that kind of information into the archive, um, even though it doesn't really nicely fit the box of like, this is an incident that happened on October 4th kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. You're talking about community involvement. Um, are there any collaborations that the archive kind of has with community partners at this time or is hoping to facilitate? Uh, so at the moment, um, our primary collaborations have been with Community Service Learning at the University of Alberta. We have had a lot of students help out um, various aspects of the archive, which has been hugely helpful. Um, and the other collaboration that we've been working with, the Alberta Police Misconduct Database, which launched earlier this year. Um, obviously, their jurisdiction is a little different than ours, and they kind of have more of a focus on um, kind of things under the legal definition of misconduct, whereas we kind of a broader definition, um, but that's been a really helpful um, collaboration. And we imported um, like over 200 cases that they had records pulled from, you know, public um, repositories and FOIP requests and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what's gone on so far. Uh, once we open for community submission, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for building relationships with community groups in terms of, as I mentioned, the street outreach teams who are, you know, out there talking to people who are at a lot of risk for police violence on a day to day basis. Um, talking to groups like, like Yes and those that work with um, unhoused youth, talking to like sex worker advocacy groups, um, kind of the the list of possible collaborators raters is kind of endless mm -hmm. um in the long run so it'll be a question of kind of what what can we build over time and what can we kind of handle to process at a time because of course it's amazing to have those relationships and have those conversations but we also want to be able to like do justice to people's stories and information so that means not you know taking in your story and then three years from now we'll manage to publish it on the front end so trying to go kind of slowly and deliberately that way 
And um, I know that a lot of work went into it before it was published, um, but PBA officially launched in November 2021. And um, what kind of growth have you seen uh, since then? Um, Certainly, there's been a lot of growth in terms of adding incidents um, and kind of finding different avenues that we can track these things down um, from kind of a more like archiving nerdy perspective. Um, there's been a lot of, um, process for us of kind of iterating our metadata categories of iterating our tagging systems, um, of thinking about how this kind of information is best represented in the archive. Um, so that's been a, a really beneficial process, I think, since we launched and have had, um, so many members of this research team kind of working collaboratively that we can kind of bounce ideas off each other and kind of change change how it works as we go. Mm-hmm. And um, from what you've kind of observed from everything, um, what has been the overall response to this project as it's been coming out in all of its different stages? Um, we haven't got a huge amount of feedback from the community yet because we've been kind of keeping things um, not under wraps, but like very low key until we have the capacity to accept community submissions. Because I don't think, you know, we don't want to like say, hey, we're here to the community and then say, oh, but we're not ready to talk to you. Um, so the conversations that we have had um, have primarily been with people already doing like abolition type work. Um and folks are really excited about it and they're excited for how we can kind of collaborate and share information. Um, but also there's, I think, a lot of unknowns out there for people about what that looks like because this kind of practice is so uncommon in Canada in particular. Mm-hmm. And has there been a response from EPS specifically at all? Not yet. No. Okay. Um, but I'm sure we're on their Edmonton Police Association's list of Twitter enemies. <laughs> yeah, I would think that you're on the radar in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, to wrap us up here and uh, feel free to kind of get as idealistic and big as you want with this. What kind of change do you hope that this archive can be a part of? And what can it bring about in our communities and on a larger scale? I mean, it is an abolitionist project. So at the end of the day, I think for us, community safety and, and building a community um, that can look out for each other does not involve policing as it exists today. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of like the the long-term dream that we like to imagine is possible. Um, but in the short term, I think, you know, there's so many really critical conversations going on in Edmonton right now about police funding models, about the efficacy of policing as, as a form of response. Um, and I think the police often have the capacity to shape the narrative because they're the ones that control the information um, in a very concerted way. Um, So I think our hope in kind of that shorter term is that we can put information in the hands of abolition activists who are already doing this work, that we can create kind of a safe platform for people who've experienced police violence to share these stories, to put it out there, for like the average person in our city to kind of understand what the scope of this looks like. Because I think if you're like a white middle-class Edmontonian, you don't have the slightest sense of what it is like to experience policing on a day-to-day basis in this city. Um, And I think if that information 
can be out there, it kind of has the potential to shift the conversation a little bit um, away from kind of the the snap reaction that we tend to have where something's not going right. There's too many unhoused people in this neighborhood and it's making us uncomfortable. Policing is a response um, to kind of understand that it's not a response that helps. It's usually a response that harms. Yeah, definitely. I think projects like this are so necessary for keeping those important conversations going in the communities. Well, thank you so much, Kenzie, for taking the time for this chat today and uh, for sharing your experiences about the work that you and your team are taking on. Thank you so much. Hi again, it's Alyssa. We just spoke with Kenzie Gordon of the Edmonton Police Violence Archive. This interview wraps up our series of episodes that looked at how the fields of librarianship and archives intersect with the topics of prison librarianship, restorative justice, and community-based archiving. I'm joined now with a few of my Shout colleagues who will briefly speak about some additional resources that they found to be of interest and that might prompt you, our devoted listeners, to further explore these complex themes. Hope you enjoy. This is Christina Harbach, and today I want to recommend the September-October 2021 Briar Patch magazine issue on prison abolition. This issue is very unique. Most of the voices in it are incarcerated folks, people who've been in the prison industrial complex for many decades. And this issue is particularly heart-wrenching for me because most of the articles were written during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic when incarcerated peoples were not given access to the resources and connections to their family and friends that they're normally able to receive. The issue talks about troubles with publishing, with receiving and giving information to and from incarcerated folks, And it's a really difficult look at life inside of prisons. So if you're looking for more information about voices inside, experiences from incarcerated peoples, and their ideas about prison abolition, I highly recommend this issue of Briar Patch. It is available for sale as a back issue at briarpatchmagazine.com. You can also read many of the articles inside for free. If you're also looking for more listening recommendations, I would recommend the podcast Ear Hustle, another audio experience from the voices of incarcerated people and the hosts who have talked to them and developed relationships over the years. Hi there, this is Paula Kerman, and I want to talk about a book called The Life Sentences of Rick McQuinney. It is published by the University of Regina Press. And it's edited, it's written by Rick McWinney and edited by Jason Demers. I recently interviewed editor Jason Demers uh, for the fall winter 2022-2023 issue of Prairie Books Now, which is published by the Association of Manitoba Book Publishers. And you can read that at prairiebooksnow.ca. Rick McQuinney uh, spent over 34 years incarcerated in Canada's federal penitentiary system. And 16 of those years, uh, he was in solitary confinement. Uh, His time uh, 
being part of the penitentiary system began in the 1970s. And he unfortunately uh, died in 2019 in Regina, Saskatchewan, where Jason Demers is an assistant professor in the Department of English at the University of Regina. Uh, Jason Demers met Rick McQuinney uh, shortly after moving to Regina in 2012 and found that they shared a love of literature. Rick McQuinney uh, was a poet. He was a writer. He was very uh, articulate. He was a public speaker, and he often wrote and spoke about his experiences of incarceration. And Jason Demers was working with Rick McQuinney on putting together a volume of his writing um, at the time of his death, which was due to undiagnosed lung cancer. And one thing that really stood out to me when I interviewed Jason Demers about the project was that he said, while his words had very little power while he was incarcerated, the hope is that their impact will be more profound now that they've been released. And the writing is, it's very disturbing, it's very powerful, and it shows a, a very intimate first-person experience of being in the prison system, which, as is shown through the, the these writings and these interviews, the prison system is portrayed as a place of violence and psychological turmoil rather than rehabilitation and reform. So I re highly recommend The Life Sentences of Rick McQuinney, written by Rick McQuinney and edited with an introduction by Jason Demers, published by the University of Regina Press. And you can read my interview with Jason Demers at prairiebooksnow.ca. My name is Dan Hackborn. Uh, previous recommendations had to do with the uh, prison side of the incarceral system. And so the recommendations that I'm going to give uh, have to do with the policing side of the incarceral apparatus. What I've got for you today is the books Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present by Robin Maynard, and Policing Indigenous Movements, Dissent and the Security State by Andrew Crosby and Jeffrey Moynihan. There's a lot of talk about how the defund the police and Black Lives Matter movements got started in the States and questions about whether they apply to the Canadian context. These two books are great groundings within that Canadian context from two different perspectives, both in terms of looking at the policing institutions impact on Black lives and on the institution's impact on Indigenous people. In addition, Policing Black Lives is a look at the history of how policing has affected Black people in Canada since uh, the creation of the settler state, whereas Policing Indigenous Movements is a contemporary look at four uh, case studies that deal with Indigenous resistance to resource extraction. Uh, so they look at ongoing contemporaneous uh, examples that can be traced right up to the present day with Coastal Gas Link and its impingement on the lands of the Wet'suwet'en peoples. Finally, I would like to recommend the 
Safer for All report and recommendations of the Community Safety and Wellbeing Task Force that was commissioned by Edmonton City Council in March and finished in March 2021 for an even more specific look at the institution of policing within Edmonton and community recommendations for how that institution can be changed in order to be made better. That's all we've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Next month, Paula will be interviewing Jen the Feisty Librarian, who will be talking about her 17 years of experience in a public library. In the meanwhile, if you want to re-listen to this episode or our 48-episode backlog, take a look at shelflibraries.transistor.fm or wherever you get your podcasts and have a listen. See you around. Thank you.